0: Well, good morning to you all, and welcome on this third Sunday of Advent, as we march ever closer to uh, the celebration of Christmas, remembering uh, that this season of Advent, as Mark uh, already mentioned in, uh, in his welcome, that uh, this season is a season of waiting, it's a season of anticipation, expectation, and it is a season that uh, requires something of us, as does life within the kingdom. It requires perseverance. It requires patience. It requires faithfulness. Our call to worship this morning was from Isaiah 40, that those who wait upon the Lord will have their strength renewed. They will run and not grow weary. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Um, And so that's our call. That's our call in this season of Advent, is to wait properly. We have to learn as Christians to wait. And we hear within the the parables of those who do not wait properly, the five foolish virgins who do not bring uh, oil with them as they go to await the coming of the bridegroom. Or the invited guests, as we thought about last week in the parable of the wedding banquet, who received the invitation for the banquet, but then when the banquet actually is time to come, they're distracted and they'd rather not come. Uh, may that not be true of us in whatever time we have in our short lives. May it be... Uh, uh, defined by faithfulness in the waiting. We put our hand to the plow. We do the work that the Lord has given to us, trusting that the day is coming when he will set all things right and he will uh, bring us into glory. Well, over the past couple of weeks, for the first two weeks of Advent, we were thinking about the first two chapters of 2 Thessalonians, and today the third, and then next week we'll, we'll break off and, and look more toward the, uh, the coming nativity. But here we conclude our look at 2 Thessalonians as Paul has been challenging the Thessalonians with this Advent spirit of preparation for the coming trials of our age, for to, to draw out of them a sense of expectation for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter 3, he finishes this off with, Basically, two sections within this text, and I'm going to spend my time in verses one through five. But verses six through 15, which relate to the psalm that we just sang, uh, uh, have to do with Paul's exhortation against idleness. Paul wraps up this letter, his second letter to the Thessalonians, you'll remember, uh, challenging them against idleness, that there were some within the congregation there at Thessalonica who were becoming idle? Perhaps because they were thinking Christ may come soon, that His coming was imminent, and therefore they said, "Well, what's the what's the point of working? Uh, what's the point of fixing the roof if the Lord's going to come back next week? You know, we can we can handle a, a leaky roof for a week. Or, what's the point of you know of, of pursuing an education? What's the point of getting a job? Um, and so many this idleness had crept in." um, uh, into the church and Paul utters a strong rebuke to them. Uh, this is not what you saw in me. He says when, when I was there, when I was among you, I I didn't take that attitude. I I worked hard. I I, I paid for the things that were given to me and I, I provided and therefore let it be said among all of you that he who doesn't work, let him not eat then. That's what, that's what Paul is challenging the Thessalonians with. And, and so this would be uh, one example of unfaithful waiting, right? Waiting that results in idleness. And you see this within the Christian church today, not so overtly, but nonetheless, with a sense that we don't have to care about the things of this world because Christ is going to come back. And uh, as Peter said, it will go up in a big ball of flames and uh, the elements will melt down. And so what's the point? Um. But I think Paul would offer through this text a pretty stiff uh, chastising about that. No, that's, that's, that's not the right attitude. Uh, Martin Luther was once asked famously what he would do if he knew that the Lord was coming back tomorrow. And he said, I'd plant a tree. <laughs> I'd plant a tree. That is, I just do a normal thing. I, I'm not I, even even that for Luther, it was not a cause for saying, "Oh, well, if I knew the Lord was coming back, then yeah, I, I, I'd spend all the money I have in my bank account, you know, just blow it out and have a big party." Or I would, I would maybe maybe even panic and run out and I share the gospel with every possible person because I know he's coming. That would also be a worthy thing to do. But but Luther Luther was making a, a point, right? His point is, I would do what I'm doing today. I would live faithfully until the Lord comes, and that's what Paul is challenging the Thessalonians to do what he's challenging us to do. Advent reminds us that Christ is coming and we ought to look forward to that with great anticipation. But in the meantime, do not be idle. In the meantime, let us strive to be obedient. In the meantime, let us be like those who had to wait for the master to come back after being given talents by the, by him. What do we do with these talents? What do we do with our money? What do we do with our time? What do we do with our gifts and abilities? Do we bury them in the clay? As the man given one talent did. You know, sort of that, again, the idleness, right? I I bury it and say, oh, you told me to wait. It's a season of waiting, so I bury it and wait till he comes back. But when the master came back, that talent was removed from the man and given to another. The The Lord rebuked that man. Instead, you don't know when the master will come back. So in the meantime, let when he does come back, let him find you faithfully working. Let him find you taking the talent he gave you and putting it to work, investing it, and bearing fruit for his glory. So Paul challenges the Thessalonians here on this back half regarding idleness. And it's a good exhortation for us as we've been thinking about faithful waiting. What does that look? How are you doing? Is idleness your problem? is, as they say, and I think it's a horrible phrase because I don't, in some sense, if it's done properly, it's impossible, but are you so heavenly minded you're no earthly good? You know, now I don't, the reason I don't like that phrase is because I believe if you're truly heavenly minded, you will be a tremendous (laughs) earthly good, right? Uh, Paul says to the Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on the things beneath. But then he goes on to tell us what life down here will look like for heavenly minded people. So I don't like the phrase, but nonetheless, you know what I mean? Are we so, are we so, have we so fixed our eyes on Jesus and his coming that we forget to love the things he loves? And he loves people and he loves his church and he loves the world. And so we ought to be faithfully serving it. So I say all that then to draw our attention back to the front end of this passage. And we'll close out our look at 2 Thessalonians with this, but again, with this theme of waiting. And I'll read uh, verses 1 through 5. Again, for us finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Paul concludes uh, with this request for prayer. And though, again, Paul is is now with the Lord and our prayer is not directly for Paul anymore, nonetheless, it is for the word of Paul and for the work of Paul that here he challenges the Thessalonians and us to pray. And So again, thinking in, in terms of a spirit of Advent, and awaiting for the coming of Christ, here here is a prayer. Here's a way you may pray. What should you be praying for in this time and in this season of waiting? Well, may we pray that the Lord may run swiftly with with his word and with the gospel. That's a good prayer. May we pray that in this time of waiting that the gospel might have wings to fly around the world and praise God it is. But we are to rejoice in that. You know, Paul says in Romans, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of the one who brings the good news, who declares our God reigns. And and again, we do this. We do this in those that we support uh, through our outreach giving. Right. Those who are taking the gospel around the world. And also this is a a prayer for us as a church as well. May, may the gospel be given wings and through affirmation and through us, whether it's through our giving, whether it's through our, our supporting or whether it's through our speaking, may the gospel have wings to fly and may, may it be used by the Lord to bring many into the kingdom. You know, I, I was thinking through this again with my students as with, with the seniors, we're looking through revelation together on Fridays and, um, Thinking about why the Lord didn't just, you know, why not just die, be raised, and then judge the world? (laughs) Like, just end it. Um, And he tells the martyrs, because you remember in, in Revelation 6, the martyrs are crying out to him, How long, O Lord, how long, faithful and true, until you come and set all things right? And he says, you have to wait, Advent, right? You have to wait a little longer until the full number of your brothers who will die as you have are to be brought in. And so there's this waiting and expectation for others to join the party. For the martyrs, it was other martyrs who would give their lives for the gospel. But through that, the church would grow. As Tertullian says, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Why does the Lord wait? We read this in in, uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13 the other day, that Before the coming, the angels hold back the the winds on the four corners of the earth, lest the judgment comes. And in that time, his angels, angel just means messenger, his messengers go forth and bring in his elect. That's why he has waited. That's why he's delayed. Because he wants you to be saved. He wants you included in the party. He wants you included in the kingdom. And so Paul urges us to pray for that. To pray indeed that the gospel might go forth with great power, and that all of God's elect might be brought in to the kingdom. Secondly, he prays in verse two that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. You know, Paul is uh, throughout his ministry in chains. Um, we saw that with the you know as he wrote the letter to the Philippians. Uh, here he is in chains, and he's writing the gospel back, or he's writing his letter back to the Philippians. And you'll remember there, maybe, maybe in some sense, um, in some sense, what Paul declares to the Philippians, which is written after uh, the letters to the Thessalonians. The, Th- the Thessalonian letters are relatively early within the the writings of Paul. Uh, the books are not in the order in which they are written. So Thessalonians is relatively early, but Paul says to the Philippians, what does he say? He says. He says, I preach the gospel, but he's, he's so excited about the way the gospel is working its way out. And he says, I preach the gospel and others are preaching it as well. Some are joining with me and they're participating with, with, with a desire to see the kingdom grow. And yet there are others or these wicked men who are preaching it out of, out of uh, a desire to, to humiliate me. That is, they are, they're saying what I'm saying, but they're trying to mock me. Right, they're out there. You hear what Paul's saying? He's saying Jesus is the Messiah, but look where it got him, you know. And he, they're going around trying to spread this boot bad news to soil his reputation. And Paul says, Paul's fist pumping in in prison because he's like, great, they're out spreading the message about Christ as Lord, trying to humiliate me, but it's working for the good of the gospel. And so, in some sense, Paul has a perspective that even here, these wicked men cannot harm him or harm the ministry that the Lord has given him. So Paul pray or asks for prayer that he may be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men for not everyone is like you guys, you know, not everyone has faith. There are people who want to see the gospel undermined. And that's part of, again, this Advent reality is that not only are we just waiting for the coming and doing our work, but there are others in the meantime who want to undercut the thing. Right. Remember, I'm just thinking again, in terms of parables, you remember the parable of the farmer who goes out at night and he sows all this good seed in his field and uh, he goes to bed, you know, and uh, and then whenever he wakes up and and his servants come to him and they say, Master, uh, w- w- what did you plant yesterday <laughs> or whenever? You know, I, you, you must have sown weeds in with your uh, in with your plants, you know, and it turns out he says, no, but but one has come in in the middle of the night, and, and try to destroy things by sowing. The, the master sowed good seed, but the enemy comes in at night and sows weeds, tares in with the wheat. And they say, do you want us to go in and, and rip out all the weeds and, and clear the field? And the master says, no, do not do that. For in tearing up the tares, you may in fact damage the, the, the wheat. The time will come, and the harvest will we'll break. We'll, we'll, we will harvest the field, and then uh, we will separate, and the tares will be burned with unquenchable fire and the wheat will be brought into the storehouse. Just let it be. Just wait a little longer. So again, with that advent waiting and patience, but part of of the reality in the waiting is what Paul had to deal with here, with wicked and unreasonable men, with the enemy who wants to see weeds sown in among the tares. And so we pray for that, not just, again, for the apostles, but for the work of the church. And then in verse 3, Paul turns with Again, as I've said before, one of the greatest words in the Bible, the great transition word of but, but the Lord is faithful. So Paul prays for for this deliverance. He prays for the the wingedness of the gospel. But Paul here now turns his his eyes to uh, the source of his confidence. The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So he's asking for prayers for him to be delivered. But he says, I want to let you know that my my legs aren't shaking, that somehow the work that that I have been blessed to start in you is somehow susceptible to destruction from the evil one. No, because my confidence is in the Lord. And again, we're, we're, we're relating this all to our Advent hope. In this season of waiting for the coming of Christ... Our confidence must be in the Lord who is faithful. And Paul continues this language of confidence in verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Not only is Paul confident that the evil one will not be able to undermine the work, Paul has confidence that they are going to persevere. But it's very important here, again, if we're thinking about our Advent confidence, where is Paul's confidence located? He's not saying, guys, I have a lot of confidence in you. He does not say that. I don't know how much confidence he has in the Thessalonians or in us. But notice what he says. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. You know why I'm confident about you, Thessalonians? Because I'm confident in the Lord who has set his love upon you. And again, let's relate this back to Philippians chapter 1, our word of exhortation this morning. Paul says, I am confident in this. That he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. God forbid that our confidence be in ourselves. That our confidence be in our grip on him rather than his grip on us. God forbid that our confidence ever be in the strength of our faith or in the purity of our hands. Paul's confidence was not in that. In fact, he says to the Philippians later in Philippians 3, I put no confidence in the flesh. But whatever I did put confidence, whatever was gained to me, I now consider loss for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. His confidence was not in him, even the Apostle Paul. His confidence was not in himself. But his confidence was in the Lord who is faithful. Knowing he will establish you and he will guard you. It is he, brothers and sisters, who began a good work in you. And Especially as Reformed folk. We, we, we understand this. That God does not simply put an invitation out, and, and so in some sense, you, he offered you the work, but you began the good work, because the invitation was made for you, and then you took advantage of it. As Reformed believers, we believe, no, he began the work in me. I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I was an alien running away from him, and he sought me out. I was an enemy, Paul says. Yet even while we were enemies, he loved us. While we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. While we were slaves to sin in unrighteousness, he freed us and made us servants of his. He began the good work in us, and as such, our confidence may be and must be always and only in him. And for Paul, it was. If we are to have firm legs in the midst of this season of Advent, where enemies seek to destroy, where Opportunity for distraction surrounds us, even as we prayed, and you know, in the holiday season, the Christmas season, which is a beautiful season, a season filled with all kinds of delights and joys and wonderful things, not bad things, good things. But things which can very easily distract if we're not careful, if we don't hold them in proper proportion. And that's just a that's just a glimpse of the whole rest of our lives in which good things have the potential to distract and therefore destroy us, if we don't hold these good things in proportion, then we can make shipwreck of our faith. In the midst of all of this, may your confidence be like Paul's in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. We have confidence in the Lord. Both that you will do, that you are doing, and that you will do as we've commanded. And by commanding, uh, by his commanding, just think they don't have the Bible yet, right? I mean, it's it's the, the the word of God is literally being written for them. So it's as he's commanded, but we take the commands of Paul as the word of God. So Paul's prayer and confidence is that in the Lord and by the power of the Lord, by the preserving hand of the Lord, we will indeed do as God commands us. And that brings us to verse five as Paul concludes here. He says, and this is sort of his desire for them then. So Paul is confident in the, uh, in the Lord to guard them, to preserve them. And now here's his prayer for them Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts. Think about think about the uh, hymn we sing uh, uh, come thou fount of every blessing right Our hearts are what prone to wander <laughs> prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart Lord take and seal it seal it for thy courts above and that's and that's what Paul is praying here for them. I pray that the Lord would direct your heart not just your mind, Not just that you think rightly about God, but that you love rightly. St. Augustine, in his writings, if we could boil down one of the the kernel truths that St. Augustine gives to us in the church, is that what we need as Christians is the proper ordering of our affections. Augustine says that the problem with man is that our affections are all out of whack. We love things we shouldn't love. We don't love things we should love. Things we should love the most, we love less. And things we should love less, we tend to love more. And and Augustine says that is the that, if you could just describe the problem with man, that's the problem with man. Out of whack affections. And the, the the pursuit of the Christian life, Augustine says, should be getting our affections in proper order. And that's how we ought to pray that we would love what we ought to love and hate what we ought to hate, that we would love things in the proper proportion, that I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that I would I would love my family in their proper place, and I would love food in its proper place, and I would love this in its proper place. Where are those places, and what order do things belong? And I think Paul is getting at that same thing here. Our hearts tend to be pulled. This is the, this is the nature of sin, is that our hearts are drawn away from the thing we ought to love properly. And Paul is praying the opposite way. Now may the Lord direct your heart. So it sets its affections on the proper things. I have in my mind also Paul's words to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, uh, in verse uh, 14, um, uh, he's, excuse me, uh, 18, he says this. Well, with Paul, you can never just jump in. So now I'm trying to find the beginning of the sentence. So here's what he says. Therefore, this is Ephesians 1, and now I'm back starting in verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that, so here's the prayer. This is my prayer for you. This is what I mentioned for you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that the eyes of your now here, the new King James does not do us well, uh, that the eyes of your understanding. There's a little, even there's a little footnote right on it. Okay. And down, if you go look at the footnote, it says the little footnote says the other texts say hearts indeed. Uh, So let me read it as I believe it ought to be read. (laughs) Not that I'm changing scripture. I'm just saying, in this case, bad translation, okay? So let me back and read. Here's my prayer for you, Paul is saying, that the eyes of your hearts, it's, a, it's an unusual phrase, the eyes of your hearts, that the eyes of your hearts being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? Paul says, this is my prayer for you. And it's interesting that the New King James translates it, the eyes of your understanding, because he says that they might be enlightened. It's the way we think of minds. But that's not what Paul says. What Paul says is the eyes of your heart. It's the understanding of your heart. It's not just. It's not a mental thing we need. The problem with man is not a rational problem, though we have rational problems. But the deeper problem is the problem of hating the thing you know to be true, not loving the thing you know to be true the way it ought to be loved. And so Paul's prayer is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and that in your heart you would know what are the riches of your calling, the riches of his inheritance, the hope to which you are called, his surpassing greatness, That's what Paul's prayer is for you and for the Thessalonians and for the Ephesians, for his whole church. And so Paul's prayer for them as he concludes this book and to us in this season of Advent is that the Lord would direct your heart, that he would orient your affections to the proper thing. Now, what is the proper thing? And Paul gives us two things here. That he may direct your hearts into, first, the love of God. And by love of God, I believe he means God's love for us. And love of God is a tricky phrase, right? Because it can mean your love for God or it can mean God's love for you. But I think what he's, the way he's meaning it here is God's love for you. So Paul's prayer is that your hearts would be directed into the love of God for you. That you would relish that. And yes, we need minds for this as well. We don't just love God with our hearts. We love him with all our minds, with all our hearts, with all our strength. So it is worth contemplating. And I charge you today to contemplate the love of God for you because Paul wants your heart directed in there amid all the distracting and deluding things in the world around us, amid all of the, 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 the work of the enemy trying to cut our legs out from under us, Paul wants your heart fixed on this truth, the love of God for you. And, and this, will, this, will, this will combat every form of Advent sinfulness. Idleness, because boy, if I know that the love of, for, of, of God for me is secure, again, what did Martin Luther say? That the Catholic Church told him Luther, if what you say is true that we are already justified in Christ and that we cannot add to our justification or take away from it, then it's going to create spiritual apathy, spiritual idleness. People won't be, be motivated to obey if you tell them, "No, you've already gotten the one hundred for the class. You don't have to do the homework." Right? You've already got. If the one hundred is guaranteed, what student is going to say, "I'm going to do my homework with diligence"? If the teacher told me, I just want to let you know right now, you got 100 for the year. And Luther said, yeah, well, then you don't understand Christianity because I'm not obeying now. The 100 is taken care of. Now I obey simply out of love for my God. I'm not obeying to get something out of it. In fact, it's the very truth that God loves me and provided for me that now stirs me to greater obedience. So whether I'm planting trees or preaching the gospel, I'm doing it all out of love for God because I have dwelt upon the truth that God loves me with an unshakable love. And let, let passages come back to your mind like Paul's words to the Romans. Where he says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor principalities, or powers, or anything can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And for Paul, that truth, nothing can separate me from. Well, then, to live is Christ and die is gain. Right? There was a fearlessness to Paul that led him into all sort, in and out of all sorts of troubles. Because he was confident, his affections were rooted in the love of God. It was like fuel for him that empowered him to faithfulness in the waiting. He didn't know when the Lord would return or when the Lord would call him home. But what he knew is that in the meantime, to live is Christ. And I am loved by God. And if I'm loved by him, then whether you don't like me or you imprison me or you seek to kill me or you reject what I'm saying, it doesn't influence me. I'm proclaiming Word of God, and Paul desires the same thing for them that they may have their hearts directed into the love of God, and then finally into the patience of Christ, the perseverance of Christ. Some translations say the steadfastness of Christ. May your heart be rooted in that so that in there too you may become steadfast. May you dwell and learn to love the fact that Christ was steadfast, that he was patient, that he was the man of Isaiah 40. Who though the young may grow weary and so on may faint, he who waits upon the Lord will find his strength renewed. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the one who waited faithfully upon the Lord. It was Jesus who persevered throughout his life, for from the moment of his conception, his humiliation began, and his suffering began. We tend to view his suffering just there upon the cross, but for the God-man coming into our flesh, his humiliation began at the conception. Born of a woman, born under the law, born in a cattle shed, Mucking his way around this earth, dealing with sinners and touching lepers and being with prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors and being accused of such things and being slandered behind his back and accused of not being holy by the holy Pharisees. Indeed, Jesus endured 40 days of fasting and the temptation of the evil one, even down to the end with his disciples there at the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood and asking his father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And when the father said, no, Jesus said, then let thy will be done. And went faithfully, enduring the cross, despising the shame. But for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And so may your heart, may the affection, may that stir your heart unto obedience. That again, your faith doesn't depend upon your steadfastness. It doesn't depend upon your perseverance in as much as we talk about the perseverance of the saints. But that your faith, your salvation, the effectiveness of your ministry, your work, Depends upon his steadfastness. And he was steadfast. And he was patient. And he did endure. And so then the author of Hebrews comes back to you. And he says, therefore let us cut away from ourselves all the sin which so easily entangles. And let us then run the race with endurance, with patience, doing what? Fixing our eyes on Christ Jesus. The author of. And the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. See, you can run with endurance through the trials, tribulations, distractions, delusions of this season of Advent and be faithful if your affections, if the eyes of your heart and of your mind, of course, are fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the love of God manifested there. And upon the patience and perseverance of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of your faith, see him standing at the finish line, summoning you in, calling you in, fix your eyes there, and you too will run with endurance. So in this season of Advent, may we hear the prayer, the heart of the Apostle Paul, and may we challenge ourselves. Where are your affections? Where are your affections disordered? We're all disordered. We all love things out of proportion. None of us here loves as God commands us to love. But let us ask the Lord, like David does in the Psalms, Lord, shine your light on me, search me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Reveal it to me where my my affections are disordered, where I tend to love something. And I'll just give you a little clue here. I I forget who said this. It was one of the things I listened to a sermon somewhere along the way. Look for the things that make you very scared, or very angry, and what you'll find there that that tend to make you in me like just a button gets pushed and bang it makes you angry, or a button gets pushed and bang it makes you scared. Find those, and what you'll find probably that sore spot is you will find a disordered affection. It's not that you shouldn't be angry about things, or that there aren't things that should cause us to be concerned. But look for those real those little sore spots, those those little nerve sensors. Because they tend to reveal, hey, maybe something's out of proportion here. Why was my first instinct to get angry and not to find my confidence in the Lord? What is it? What 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 thing is under there that, that, that means so much to me that I'm afraid of losing it? Or what is this thing that threatens me? What is what's so threatening about this? What do I stand to lose? Those things, I have to do this in my life as well. Those little things reveal something down under the surface. And we can find those and say, Lord, is there a disordered affection here? Am I caring about even a good thing more than I ought to care about it? Putting more value on that than I should? Look for those things. Pray that the Lord reveals them. And then pray by the Spirit that He would help reorient you, setting your hearts into the love of God and the patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that our affections are disordered as Augustine confesses throughout his great work the Confessions. And, Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would search us and see if there's any wicked way in us. Lord, we know that it's not healthy to be disordered in these ways. It's not healthy to make idols of even good things that you provide to us. And so we pray that you would have mercy upon us. But, Father, we rejoice in the fact that you love us. You do not wait until we are holy and pure and righteous to set your love upon us. But even while we were enemies, you set your love upon us. We thank you for the steadfastness of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we have our salvation. We thank you for these things. Fill our hearts with joy and delight as we contemplate them today, that the the result in our lives would be lives of faithfulness, that we could say with the Apostle Paul, for us to live is Christ and to die, gain. May it be true of us, we pray. Keep us faithful throughout this season of Advent, this long season of waiting, until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so our prayers come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and keep us faithful until then, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.